In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, friends, it's good to be with you again. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Paul Koch from Grace Lutheran Church in Ventura. I'm also your, uh, what do they call me, Blaine? Circuit Visitor, that's right. I used to be Circuit Counselor back in the day. Um, and I missed your last uh, call meeting, which was the exciting one, I heard. Uh, but you're still here. The church is still going on. How wonderful is that? You still have a pastor. And I thank you that you continue to pray for Pastor Mike and uh, his well-being as he continues to do this work. Continue to pray for your call committee as well. This is a long, brutal process, as it's proving to be, uh, but uh, the good Lord will see you through. And it's great to be here. What a beautiful uh, sanctuary. I uh, heard about all the things. When I came in, I was like, man, it's really bright, and it makes me want to make my church redo ours, because it's really, it looks great. It really does. Um, uh, it was good to be here. I asked uh, Samuel uh, when we were in the back, I said, I said, well, what are we preaching on today? And he said, Advent. I said, all right, let's do it. So that's what we're going to do. We're doing Advent. Um, the theme uh, that we have this year is Dominus, as it says on the cover. And it's really the theme is, is about the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ as we find it, his dominion, his authority, as we find it in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we don't do a lot of themes from Mark often because it's very... Uh, short, very uh, precise gospel, and he kind of moves really quick. Uh, but it's, so it's good to spend some time in Mark, and you're going to have various pastors coming through, uh, focusing on different areas of our Lord's authority as it's demonstrated. And we have a great text today from chapter 2. Now, if you were to look this up in your Bibles, uh, no doubt, you know how your Bibles, your English Bibles always have a like a heading on all the sections? No doubt it would say something like, Jesus heals the paralytic, or something like that, or our Lord heals the paralytic, which of course he does, and, and that is in there. That's not actually what we're focusing on, though, and, and I actually would argue that's not what the text focuses on. There is a healing, but the main thing that happens is that Jesus forgives this man his sins, and so what we're focusing on tonight is our Lord's authority over the power of sin itself. That's, a, that's something profound, right? It's something that we should really celebrate. And to kind of start with, I was, when I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking, you know, have you ever thought what those friends must have been thinking when they were bringing this guy to Jesus? Or for that matter, what, what the paralytic himself was going through as he goes through this ordeal? Because it's a strange story, right? I had a professor at the seminary who specialized in Mark, and he would say that, in, in essence, all of Mark's stories are strange. They're all very weird tellings, right? So if you think, about, you know, you play this out. If it was a movie and you're kind of watching it, right? Jesus is in the house. It's packed, standing room only. You can't even get in at the door. These friends bring a paralyzed man, right, somebody they, they truly care about, and, and they're going to bring him to Jesus. There's no way they're going to get into the house. So they climb up to the roof, carrying the man with them. They dig a hole through the roof. If you've ever been uh, in the Mideast, if you've ever been to Israel, for sure, right, all the houses have very flat roofs, right? Uh, so back then, you know, it would have been made of... Uh, material you could dig through, right? They dig through. They lower this guy in. They've gone all this work. They clearly have faith that Jesus 
can do something for this man, right? In fact, that's what the text says. Jesus sees their faith. He sees their faith in these incredible actions. They lower the man down before Jesus, and what does he do? Son, your sins are forgiven. That's incredible news. But how do you think they heard that? Like, I mean, I don't know. I think like they were probably going, end, right? What's, and what's the big, the, do the big thing, right? Well, I mean, what, do, the, do the, make him walk. You know, people have been healed by you. That's why we're bringing him to you. I, at least I assume that that must have been going through their minds. They've done all this work, brought this man to him, and, and he receives the forgiveness of sins. But clearly they were probably wanting something more. Now, I like to imagine, of course, we don't know, I like to imagine that maybe for the paralytic himself, it didn't play out that way. Maybe for him, I mean, he's no different than any of us, right? That, that you live your life, he's got a tough go. We don't know how he became paralyzed, we don't know if he was born, any of that sort of stuff, but He's got a tough go, but he has friends who clearly care about him. He's got some, some uh, life that he has going, but he, like you, is a sinner, right? He knows. He knows himself, things he's never said to anybody else, right? He knows how he has, has sinned against his God in thought, word, and deed. He, he knows that, that there are those in his life that he has, he has hurt and wounded, that he has failed to help, that he could have helped and he didn't, Right? He knows the things he said, the things he's regretted doing. He knows all of that, and now he finds himself at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And maybe for him, this was the greatest thing he could ever hear. I mean, what an incredible word. Now, I know we don't know that, right? Mark doesn't tell us what the friends were thinking. It doesn't tell us what the man paralyzed was thinking, um, but I think kind of playing that out at least allows us to entertain the idea that the main thing that is happening here is not that he was healed. He was healed, right? He was healed after. It was the, the second thing Jesus did. The first thing he does, the immediate thing he does, is forgive this man his sins. He has authority over the power of sin. Now, in the text, Mark does tell us what some people are thinking, those scribes that are there around the outside that have come to try to ascertain what's going on with this Jesus fellow, right? And they, in their minds, are beginning to accuse Jesus, right? Because they excuse him of being a blasphemer because who can forgive sins but God alone? How dare this man do that work, right? And Jesus knows that. He knows what they're thinking. He discerns their hearts, I think it says in the text. And so he replies to them with a riddle, right? It's kind of a great moment. He, he, he says, he goes, why, why do you think these things in your hearts? He says, what is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk, Right? Which is easier to say? Now, for those scribes, those experts in the law that were there, I think they might actually make the argument the easier thing to say or the more difficult thing to say is to, that your sins are forgiven because they know in order to say that you are putting yourself 
in a place you ought not be. You are placing yourself in the stead of God, right? Only God can forgive sins. And so for them, maybe they would think the easier thing to say would be to say that take up your bed and walk, take it up and go, right? But if he doesn't take up his bed and go, right, well, then you look like a fool and, uh, you know, you would discredit yourself. And in the end, you'd probably end up a blasphemer anyway, right? So you're kind of back in the same boat. And so maybe they would say then, well, no, then the easier thing to say is that your sins are forgiven because at least it doesn't require any proof, right? You guys go to church often. You're here on a Wednesday night until you're coming Sundays, right? You come to church, you receive the, the, you confess your sins, you receive the absolution, your sins are forgiven. And you don't look any different afterwards, you may try a little bit, but you really don't, right? You're the same sinners, right? That, that there's, doesn't require some great proof on the outside, so it's easier maybe to say that you can kind of get away with it, right? And then our Lord's response to this, though, um, it, he doesn't choose a side, right? He basically says, listen, I do both, right? I do both things. He says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you might know that, I say to you, and he turns to the paralytic, take up your bed, rise, and go home. And he does, right? He gets up fully healed, which means, according to our Lord, fully forgiven all his sins. He has the authority to do one. He has the authority to do the other. The Son of Man, the Son of God himself is given authority over the power of sin. And what does he do with that power? He forgives people. Over and again, he forgives. And that's what we're holding on to, right? That, that word of Christ continues to forgive. And it plays out in the story that comes right on the heels of it. It's the same theme, just kind of runs along. For the very next thing he does is he sees Levi, a tax collector, and he calls him to be a disciple. It's like he's poking his finger in the eyes of the Pharisees who are gathering around, right? Because they're all judging him anyway. They've already seen that how dare he forgive this man of sins. Now he calls a tax collector to be a disciple. Now, Tax collectors back then are not like tax collectors today. Maybe they're a little bit the same. I don't know. But they're, um, we don't really have them like that. The way he would have been viewed by his brothers um, there is uh, he would be viewed pretty much as an unclean collaborator with the oppressors, which is the Roman Empire. He, he's not gathering taxes on behalf of Israel. He's gathering taxes on behalf of Rome, Right? So it's kind of turning in your brother. So these people were, were often viewed as, as, as kind of public sinners, uh, unredeemable folks. And that's the guy Jesus came. Now, we don't know what other sins Matthew had or Levi had there. We, certainly there were plenty, but, but he was a tax collector, and that's enough. That's enough. And yet Jesus calls this one to be his disciple. Come follow me, he says. Follow me. Right? And you can assume, I think safely so, that Jesus would forgive this man his sins because he has the authority to do just that, to forgive him his sins. And then if that's not enough, what does he do next? He has table fellowship. He sits down to eat 
with Levi and his tax collector buddies and other just sinners, it says, right? Who knows what all they were, right? But there they are, the unredeemable, the people everyone else would judge as these aren't the ones you associate with. These aren't the ones you bring in your midst because they're unclean. They're things that, that put you outside not just outside of polite society, that'd be one thing, but it's even outside of what is acceptable for the people of God. And yet there's Jesus sitting with them. And this time it's the scribes of the Pharisees who begin to rile up. They begin to ask the disciples, well, who is this? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And again, Jesus knows. He knows what they're saying. And what's his response? He says, um, that, it, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. That's beautiful, right? Because guess that's what, that means he's come to call you sinners into his presence, into his gifts. Now, this is a beautiful thing for Advent. Advent is a time of year... Um, Advent means the arrival, right? And, we, and we, we meditate, take these special services to think about the arrival of the Son of God, or the arrival in Bethlehem, of course, which we'll celebrate on Christmas morning. But the arrival of God as he still comes to us even now. He still comes to you. When you gather in church, he comes to you in, in, in the waters of holy baptism. He comes to you in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. He comes to you in that proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. The Father has given to his Son authority over the power of sin. And the Son of God has charged his church to proclaim that forgiveness of sins out into this world. And you, my friends, you, you have been given people in your lives, people nurtured and cared by the church to speak that truth to you, to remind you that, that there is no unredeemable person. That you are sinners, yes. And there, there are times in which others may push away, but your Lord never pushes you away. He'll show you your sin. He'll call you to task for sure. But in your repentance, God comes to you to forgive you, to set you free. And so I remind you tonight, I remind you throughout this Advent season as you hear the other pastors come through and, and you kind of take in our Lord's authority, his, his dominion over the things of this world, to remember that he has dominion over your sin as well. He came to bear it. He died for it. He rose from the dead victorious over it. So your Lord Jesus Christ has called you his brothers and sisters, and therefore he has made you heirs of eternal life. He invites you to the table with him to participate in the great wedding feast. He calls you the saints of the Most High. And he can do all these things, for he is the Son of God. With that certain and true authority, so a very small way here and now he has sent me for this moment to tell you that you are forgiven. All of your sins, all of them, 
in Christ our Lord. You, my friends, are forgiven. You are forgiven in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.